doing good this morning. Um, we're excited about today. We're wrapping up the series by design and excited about this last message. Um, next week, we're starting a new series. Um, it's called Bigger Than Me. And we're going to be looking at the church and the purpose of the church and how we have a purpose in the church that's bigger than ourselves and, and who the church is calling us, who God's calling us to be as a church. And so we'll be looking at that through that series. Um, and so we're excited about that. Looking forward to jumping into that. Today, though, we're going to wrap up the By Design series, and that's going to be in Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to begin. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. If you don't have a Bible, we'll give you one at our Next Steps table. We'd love to do that for you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. And so Philippians chapter 1, we're going to jump in today, and um, you can go ahead and relax. We're not talking about sex this week, so you can relax. Uh, and, and this week we're going to talk about relationships and relationships in general. If you're not married, you can take these same thoughts, these same principles and apply them to other relationships. Um, and, and so if you are married, I want to speak directly to you out of Philippians 1 and 2 today. This, this section of scripture is uh, really about any relationship, but it specifically would apply to us in our marriages. And so really want to look at that today and take a good look at that. So we're going to begin in Philippians 1.27. 127, this is what it says. It says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul's writing to the church in Philippi. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggles you saw I had, and now hear that I have. But let's pray and we'll jump in. God, thank you for your word. Um, God, I thank you for the fact that we can read it, that we can have it, God, that it can work in us. God, I thank you that it is living and active and it pierces our hearts. God, I pray that you would do that today. Pierce our hearts with your word, through the power of your spirit. God, just come and have your way here in this place now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How many of you, um, you probably heard this before. How many of you have ever heard somebody maybe talking about an athlete, maybe a football player, a baseball player, um, or some, somebody maybe just in life in general? You hear people say, they have a lot of heart. You ever heard somebody say that? They have a lot of heart. Um, I hear that quite often. You hear it a lot around sports and athletics and things like that. Uh, somebody plays hard, you say they have a lot of heart. And basically what you're saying is this, that they have a lot of drive. They have a lot of willpower. They have a lot of determination. Um, that they don't accept defeat easily. Um, and, and so it's really important that we see that. And, and the thing about having a lot of heart, having that type of heart, having that type of will, that drive, that perseverance, um, that determination, is it will carry you further than many times than anything else in life. Um, further than your talent, further than your abilities, it can carry you further in life. And, and I saw this true um, in my own life when I was playing baseball. I ended up getting to play baseball at Georgia Southern for a few years until the coach told me I wasn't good enough to play anymore. And um, that kind of wrapped it up for me. But, but when I got to college, um, it was pretty clear to me that I was not as talented as a lot of these other guys. And, and uh, basically in college, I became what they call an ERW. Anybody ever heard of an ERW? Eat, ride, and watch. That's what I did. Is I ate, I rode, and I watched a lot of baseball. I had good seats, um, but that's about it. And so uh, my, my, my heart, though, I, I loved the game. I loved playing the game. I played it hard. And my heart really carried me further than what my ability would carry me. And I want you to think about that 
in marriage. I want you to think about that in other relationships in general. How much heart are you putting into that relationship? Are you, are, is your, are you determined? Is your, are you driven? Are you, is your will strong in that direction um, towards your marriage, towards other friendships, towards other relationships? Because if so, if our heart is right, then it'll carry us further than what our ability can carry us. It can carry us further than what um, we could do on our own, and, and we're going to look at this. So today I want to talk to you about um, what it looks like to have a, the heart of a successful marriage. What does that look like? Heart of a successful marriage. What does that, what does that mean? What does it look like? And we're going to look at this out of um, uh, Philippians chapter 1 and then on into chapter 2. And first of all, I want to talk about what is a successful marriage. What does it mean to have a successful marriage? And as I was praying this week, one of the things that God really put in my heart and something that I felt like he really stressed in my heart is this, that oftentimes he wants more for our marriage than what we realize and oftentimes more than what we want from our marriage. And the thing that I want you to see in this is that he wants us to go further in our marriage. He, he's, not, he's not satisfied with us just surviving in our marriage. He wants us to be thriving in our marriage. And because of the culture we're in, because of um, a lot of different reasons, um, we, we kind of live with the mindset many times that the goal of marriage is just staying together. I mean, right? There's, we just have those days, don't we? Where it's like it, it, the goal right now is for me not to kill him, right? Um, the goal right now is, is for me just not to blow up. And we have those days. We have those times. We have those moments. Um, but I want you to be encouraged today that God wants more than that. God wants to work in you. He wants to work in your marriage to, to, to help you to thrive in your marriage rather than just getting by or surviving. And so when you look at a successful marriage, it's more than just staying together. I want to tell you three things that I believe um, make up a successful marriage. One is that it reflects the glory of God. In other words, it reflects his character. It reflects the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. All of those things being reflected in our marriage. Now, some of this, look, we're going to talk about, and this is what a successful marriage would ideally look like, but we live in a real world. And so things aren't going to always be just, uh, just dreamy, right? Just perfect. There's times when we're going to have struggles, we're going to have issues. But for the most part, he wants our marriage to reflect the glory of God. Um, another thing is that our marriage is to paint a picture of Jesus' love for the church, paint a picture of Jesus' love for the church so that when people look at your marriage, they can see you loving each other the way Jesus loves us, the way Jesus loves his church, the people. And so that he, he, people are able to look at the marriage and say, this is how God relates to us. So that there's, there's, there's unconditional love. There's a lot of forgiveness. Um, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, walking together through difficult situations, um, being there for each other. And so it paints a picture of Jesus' love for the church. The third thing is that it advances the mission of God. It advances the mission of God. What's the mission of God? The mission of God is to make disciples, right? To make other followers of Christ, to bring other people into a relationship with Jesus. And so he wants us to use our marriage, our marriages to be used to bring other people closer to him. 
And so I hope you can see maybe a, a different way of looking at marriage. Um, that it's not about just trying to make us happy or just trying to satisfy us, but there's a greater purpose. There's a greater reason for marriage to exist. It's to reflect the glory of God, to paint a picture of Jesus' love for the church and to advance the mission of God by making disciples, making other followers of Christ. And so that's a successful marriage, a marriage that is thriving. And that's what we want to work towards. That's what our goal should be is to have that type of marriage. And I believe this, that many times we've set our standards too low. We've set our standards too low. And, and mostly, we have often misunderstood what marriage is about. But I want to encourage you today that God wants more for our marriages. He wants more for our marriages. And he wants them to thrive, not just to survive. And so when we look at P, uh, Philippians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, I want to point out to you that in these verses, what Paul's really talking about is unity. And so the first thing I would tell you about the heart of a successful marriage is that it's a heart that's unified. The, the couple is unified around the gospel. They're bound together by the Holy Spirit. And so there's unity that exists. And this is really Paul's whole point through the scripture that we're going to read today. And so really what happens is Paul's giving us the picture before he tells us how to get to it. He's giving us the picture before he tells us how we arrive at this unification. And so the first thing that I want you to see is that he calls us to unity. And he calls us to unity on one hand, he says, so that we can stand firm in one spirit. So we can stand firm in one spirit. So there's this defensive posture that together we're standing through the trials and the tribute. I don't know what that was, but demon in the speaker there. Um, but but it, there he is again. Um, but we, what we have to realize is that we're there to stand together. We're there um, as one person standing there, one flesh standing firm against the the, the forces of this world against the trials and the tribulations, against the circumstances of this life. So we're standing firm together, united together in a united front. But then he also says to be striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So there's this, we're standing together against the, the trials and against the, the tribulations of this world, but we're also striving together to move forward the kingdom of God, to move forward um, his purposes, to reach more people for Christ. And so you can see this unity working in two different ways. And so Paul wants us standing together firm against the attacks that come, but also striving ahead to see that the kingdom of God is advanced, that the mission of God is being accomplished. And so we see that the very first thing is that a, success, a heart of a successful marriage is a heart, or hearts that are unified, hearts that are unified. The second thing comes out of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let's read those. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you looking to the interests of the others. And so we read those scriptures, and it points us to something else. And, and what it points us to is a transformed heart, a heart that's been transformed by Jesus. So number two is this, a heart of a successful marriage is a heart that's been transformed by Christ. And see, this is not an optional step right here. This is 
This is the most important step of all. This is the step. This is the thing that we have to do. If we're going to have the marriage and, and the marriage is going to function the way God wants it to function, our hearts have to be transformed by, by God. They have to be transformed by Christ, by the Spirit of God working in us. And so we see that this is not something that's optional. It's something that has to happen. This is the very foundation that our marriage is built on is a transformed heart that's been transformed by Christ to be more like his heart. It's, it's a heart that, that's, that's fueled by the gospel and the continuing experience, that ongoing experience with Jesus. It, it fuels us and it transforms us and it is the foundation that we build the rest of our lives, including our marriage, on. About two or three months ago, I went and bought a new lawnmower. Um, and how many of you were like me? For like the last three or four years, I had to work longer on my lawnmower than it would take me to cut my grass. Anybody else have that kind of problem? You know, you, you go to do something, you go to work on something, you have to work on something before you can work on something. That's the condition that my lawnmower was in. So I finally had enough, and I'm like, I'm going to go buy me a lawnmower. And I didn't realize, though, how expensive those lawnmowers are. And so I ended up having to finance it like a car, I'm telling you. It was, it was like really expensive. And so um, I got it, and when Dake turns 16, he's going to be driving a lawnmower because it's kind of taking the place of him having a vehicle now. But uh, at least I can get my grass cut. And so, um, but, but... When I went and bought it, I got it home, and they had to show me all the different things to do uh, to run it, even just to crank it, right? And so when I got there, uh, I, I had to figure out, all right, I've got to put it in neutral. I've got to uh, have the blades disengaged. I've got to have the parking brake on. And all of that's just to crank it, right? And so if it was going to function the way it was designed to function, I had to get all those steps done. I had to take care of those steps. Well, what I'm telling you today is it's the same way with marriage. If our marriage is going to function the way it's designed to function, listen, guys, listen, girls, we've got to take this step. This is not an optional step for us to take. If it's going to function the way it's designed to function, our hearts have to be transformed by Jesus. We have to have a, a continuing, ongoing experience with Christ so that he is still transforming us. He's still working in us. He's still doing things in us and through us that we couldn't do on our own because only then is he going to move us towards the potential that our marriage has to impact the world and impact his kingdom the way he wants it to impact. And so when you look at this, it's important. He, he says these things as if you um, are sharing in the spirit, if you have any encouragement, if any tenderness. And he's saying if, but these are really rhetorical questions. He, he knows the answer. He has seen these people experience the grace of Christ. He knows what they've experienced. And so he's saying, basically, I know you've experienced this. And he's saying basically this, since you've experienced verse 1, all of those things he says, then you should be seeing verse 2, which he comes back again to unity. He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. And so he's saying, because you've experienced Christ, because your heart's been transformed by Jesus, then here's the reality. You ought to be united, one with each other, moving in the same direction, having the same heart, the same goal, the same um, incentive. And so moving together in that way. And so he says, here's what you've experienced. This is what that should have caused. And then he says, even this, even more in verses 3 and 4, that I want to see you carry this even further. And so he gives us instructions on how to carry it further. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you looking to the interests 
of others. And so he's telling us that if this is going to happen, there's some action that we have to take. There's some more steps beyond just salvation. He's saying you've got to humble yourself. He's saying you've got to put others' needs ahead of your own. And so we see that this is a complete life that's being transformed by the gospel. Jesus is transforming hearts. He's giving the fuel and the foundation to, to our relationships. He's showing us what should happen as we come unified together. And he shows us the action that we have to do, this, self, this selflessness that we have to obtain, this dying to self that we have to do in order for this to continue in our lives and in our marriages. And all of this takes place because of a transformed heart, a heart that has been touched by Jesus. That's number two. Number three is in verse five. In verse five, it says, you're in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset or have the same attitude um, as Christ Jesus, the same attitude and mindset that he had. So when we look at this one, we can see this, that, that a heart of a successful marriage follows Jesus' example. He's basically giving us an example. He's saying, look at Jesus. This is how you live your life. Look at Jesus. This is how you um, encounter people in your relationships. Look at Jesus. This is how you encounter one another in your marriage. And so he's giving us an example. And marriage, as I said earlier, is there to paint the picture of the gospel for the world to see. And when, we, when people look at our marriage, God wants them to be able to see his love for us in the way we love our spouse, and so it's following Jesus' example. And he goes on to tell us about this example. He says in verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Number four is this, that the heart of a successful marriage thinks of others, not of yourself. And so he's saying Jesus did this. This is your example. Jesus, he did this. He thought of others. He didn't think of himself. How many of y'all have a hard time with that? Can we be honest this morning and say, like, I have a, I'm very good at thinking of myself. I have a harder time thinking about others. I'm, I'm pretty good at thinking about myself, um, but grew up an only child, so I spend a lot of time thinking about myself. And so now today, I, I really have to work at thinking about others. And it shows sometimes, like Susan and I and, and the boys will be, um, say, at a family gathering. And, and they say, it's time to eat. We say the blessing. Everybody starts getting in line. And then I don't ever really think, you know, my, I've got one son that's still pretty young, and so I don't ever think about fixing his plate, but I'll have my plate standing in line, right? And I'm standing there ready to go get my food. And Susan will be like, is that for Reed? Are you getting that for Reed? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I'm getting this for Reed. I'm getting this for Reed. And so then I go fix Reed's plate. But it was like a reminder that, that I'm not just here for, to exist for myself, um, but that I need to think about other people before myself. And, and, and the reality is that we're really good most of the time of thinking about ourselves, but we're not so good many times thinking about others ahead of ourselves. I want you to understand that your outlook in this situation in, in thinking of others or, or thinking of yourself, that your outlook will determine the outcome. In other words, if you're in a place where you, you're, you're selfish, you're in a place where you think only of yourself or you think of yourself first, it causes division. It causes divisiveness. And so we've got to realize that my outlook and how I see this, whether I'm seeing others ahead of myself or whether I'm in a place where I think only of myself is going to determine the outcome, whether it's divisive and destructive or whether it's unifying and working together. It says in the scripture that Jesus didn't consider 
equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be used to his own advantage. And so what Jesus did, listen, the most powerful person who ever walked the face of the earth, God himself in human form, the most powerful person ever walked the face of the earth, basically what it's telling us is he didn't leverage his power to elevate himself. He leveraged his power to elevate others. And that's some challenge to me, I know. And I hope it's a challenge to you to think about how are you using your power in your relationships, in your marriage? Are you using it to elevate yourself? Are you using it to elevate someone else and lift them up? Because Jesus, the most powerful person to ever walk the face of the earth, um, he leveraged his power to lift up others. And we got to decide how are we going to use our power. And you can say, I don't really have that much power, but you do. You have the power of your words, right, in any relationship, especially your marriage. You have the power of your actions in any relationship, but especially marriage. You have influence in your relationships and in your marriage. And so we have to ask ourselves, how am I using those things? Am I using those things to get what I want, or am I using those things to elevate someone else, to serve someone else? Which takes us to the next point. Um, is that a heart, the heart of a successful marriage serves others. Listen to verse 7 and 8. It says, rather, he made himself nothing. So he didn't consider equality something to be used to his own advantage. But instead, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so we see that the heart uh, heart of a successful marriage serves others. And that's what it says Jesus came to do, that even though he had all the rights of God, he had all the privileges of God, he didn't hold on to those rights. He didn't hold on to those privileges, but he emptied himself of those rights and said, I'm gonna take the form of a servant. And he served others. And he did it, it said, in humility. And that's a huge word for this. It's it's the second time that Paul's used it in this passage. And and when we look at it, it's a huge word for us to to grab hold of and understand. But I think so many times, we misunderstand um, what humility is. Sometimes uh, we see the, the only example of somebody even talking about humility is maybe when somebody accepts an award and they're like, I'm really humbled by this award or whatever. But then you see people like with false humility sometimes who they get a compliment. Somebody said, well, you did really well on this or this was great or, or whatever. And they're like, they kind of do the all shucks thing. Like, oh, I don't know, man. I'm, I just, I'm not that great, but I kind of just, you know, blind hog finds an acorn every now and then. And da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and just keep going on. And don't you just want to go like, just shut up and say thank you, right? Just say thank you, which is the best thing you can do. Somebody gives you a comment, thank you. Uh, but but just, just trying to put on humility and that like, oh, I didn't, didn't all, all shucks, you know? And that whole kind of thing um, is not what God has in mind. Humility in this passage doesn't mean to think less of yourself. It really means to think of yourself less. So it's not putting yourself first. It's, it's taking a step back. And not thinking about me first, but thinking about others. Um, Humility is also being grounded in your self-awareness. Your self-awareness and transparency. So that you know yourself and you accept yourself. In other words, you're able to be transparent with people. You're able to, to be real with people because you realize that my weaknesses don't define me. My weaknesses aren't what creates who I am. 
who I am is created through Christ, by being in Christ. And so that's who I am. I, but I do have some weaknesses, just like everybody else in the room has weaknesses. But being humble is not being afraid to admit that you have those weaknesses. It's not being afraid to admit that you don't have it all together. It's not being afraid to admit that you don't have the ability to do everything in and of yourself. And so we see humility is grounded in self-awareness and transparency, knowing yourself and accepting yourself for who you are in Christ, knowing that your weaknesses do not define you. The last thing is that humility yields us to God and the good of others. And so we see that this humility, it allows us to yield ourselves to God. It allows us to become what God wants us to become. And it allows us to serve other people as we give our lives for other folks. And so we need to see this humility. We can see this humility in Jesus. It says, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The next one, the sixth one, the heart of a successful marriage sacrifices. This is out of verse 8 also. I won't read it all again, but it says that he gave his life. He was obedient even to death. Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross. He gave up his life. And here's the thing I find. Many people are willing to sacrifice or many people are willing to serve, I should say, when there's no cost involved. But when it begins to cost you something, many times people begin to back away. The other day, Susan and I and Dake, my oldest, went to eat with some friends. And they were, uh, they're, they're younger than me. And, and uh, I wanted to just bless them. And, and uh, so I was going to buy the meal. I was going to get dinner. And so everybody ordered and then it was time to pay. So I was like, y'all just go ahead. I got it. There were seven of us. I'm thinking 10, 12 bucks a person. I'm thinking 70, 80, 85 bucks. I'm getting out of this thing. It'll be good. I can bless them. And so I go up there and she's like, okay, sir, that'll be $147. I was like, Ugh. I was like, y'all come back. Y'all come back. We're going to get something different. We're going to get something different. And, uh, and so the, the, she said that and, you know, and I paid it. And here's the thing, though. It's kind of funny because it caught me off guard. It was about twice what I thought it was going to be, and uh, especially once the tip was added. And so, um, I, but it caught me off guard. But the thing was, it was a sacrifice for me to pay that. But I love those people that we were eating with, and I wanted to bless them. And even though my kids didn't get to eat for two weeks, the, the reality of it is <laughs> I wanted them to be blessed. And so we went on a diet, but you can tell I haven't been on a diet, but... But we, we, we made it. But it was a sacrifice. But I didn't mind the sacrifice because I care about them. I love them. I wanted to bless them. Even though it was a sacrifice, the reality of it was it was worth it to me. And, and marriage, we've got to see and we've got to make the, the decision that it's worth the sacrifice. It's worth me sacrificing myself for my spouse uh, and, and for the mission of God. It's worth me sacrificing so that I can exalt Jesus, and I can lift others up instead of myself. And so we see that. And marriage, though, unfortunately, is often defined by how much we can take rather than how much we can give. And so I'd ask you this question. In your marriage or in other relationships, uh, what are you sacrificing to make it successful? Is it all about you? Is it about yourself or is it about others? Is it about serving yourself or serving others? Is it about making sacrifices for others. So it's important. The last one is in nine, verses 9 through 11. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, meaning Jesus, 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This kind of brings us full circle of where we started, where that unity we talked about in the purpose of marriage to glorify God, um, to reflect his glory, uh, to paint a picture of Jesus' love for the church, to see that uh, our marriage is there to advance God's kingdom, making disciples, making followers of Christ. It kind of brings us full circle around to this last one, which is the heart of a successful marriage glorifies God, that that is the goal of marriage. It's not to just um, be happy. It's not just to be Um, to think we can find satisfaction in that, but it's to glorify God in our marriage. And so it's important. The Bible talks about Jesus being exalted, being lifted up. And he says that therefore God exalted him. So in other words, what he's saying right there is this, that just as God exalted Jesus, just as God lifted him up because of what he did, what did he do? He came in the nature of, as, a, as God, but he came in the form of a man. He laid his life down, made himself nothing, put those rights to the side. He went to the cross, even though he was considered cursed. And so God looks at him and says, you did all of that, and therefore I'm going to raise you up. And Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father because God raised him to life. And so we see that because of what Jesus did, God's response was that Jesus was exalted. Now we have to ask ourselves, each one of us in here today, whether you're married or unmarried, what am I going to do with what Jesus has done for me? Am I going to exalt myself and continue to live for myself? Or am I going to exalt Jesus the way he should be exalted because of what he's done for me? And so we too should be exalting Christ and our marriage should be exalting Christ, bringing glory to God. And here's the thing, guys, the the fact that we have a risen Christ points us to the fact that one day he'll return, that one day he'll return. And here's the reality. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That will happen on one day. But Not everyone who does that will be saved because if we aren't willing to bow the knee now to Jesus, we're not going to spend eternity with Jesus. So I would say the best thing to do is to bow now, to look at what he's done in, in our lives and for us and exalt him to the place that he really and truthfully deserves to be. If you call on his name now, you'll be saved. But there will be a day when every knee and every will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The question I would ask you right now is, have you bowed the knee to Jesus? Have you accepted him as the savior of your life? Have you surrendered to him as the Lord of your life? Because if you miss that step, Nothing's going to make sense in life. Nothing's going to make sense in marriage. It's not going to function to do what God says it was designed to do. And we should look to the creator to tell us the purpose of marriage, not the culture around us. And so we got to ask ourselves today, have I bowed my knee to Christ? Is that the posture of my life? Have I accepted him as my savior? And how am I living in light of what Jesus has done for me? So God gives us this example. I love this section of Scripture because he gives us such a great example, an example of unity, an example of a transformed heart, an example that we can follow, an example of thinking of others, not yourself, an example of serving others, an example of uh, making sacrifices. 
that ended up glorifying God. He's done all of that for us. He gives us that example right here. But here's where the breakdown comes. Breakdown comes in this, that we don't have the ability to do that. We don't have the ability to live all of that out, at least not on our own. And so we have the example, but where does the power come from to be able to live it? Because if we could fix ourselves, we'd have done it a long time ago. If we could fix our marriage, we'd have done it a long time ago. So where does the power for this to happen come from? And that happens in verses 12 and 13. It says in verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in in order to fulfill his good purpose. I want you to see that in this scripture, he's telling us, I've given you the example. I've given you what your your, your life should be about, what your relationship should look like, what your marriage should look like. The thing I want now is to tell you where that power comes from. And he says the power comes from working out our salvation as God works in us. Notice that he doesn't say to work in your salvation because that's impossible to work in salvation, to to, to earn salvation. The only way we earn salvation or the way we come to salvation is when we surrender our lives to Jesus. And he works on the inside of us. He sends his spirit to dwell in us, to change our heart, to transform us. And so we've got to see that the power for this type of life, the power for this type of living, the power for this type of marriage comes only through the work of Christ in us. He's got to work in us before he can work through us. He's got to work in us before he can work in our marriage and make it what it's designed to be. And I want you to be able to to walk out of here today knowing that if I can find myself in Christ, if I can rest myself in Christ, if I can pursue Christ, if, if the Spirit of God's working in me, then that means that anything is possible, that God can do anything. If he's working in me, then that means anything is possible. The word that he uses for work out, when he says work out your salvation, is a word that would, was also used like if you were um, mining a mine and, talking, and trying to get every possible bit of, of a valuable ore that you could get or, or, or harvesting a field and trying to get every, everything that you could get that was of value as you harvested that field. In other words, what he's trying to tell us in this is that God sees incredible potential in our lives and in our marriage. But the thing we've got to realize is that it's only found in him. It's only found in him. And the power for this is found in him. He wants to work out every ounce of potential, everything that's valuable in our marriage and in our lives. But we've got to surrender them to him and allow him to do in us what we can't do on our own. The word that that talks about um, that he works in us, says it is God who works in you. That word is actually the word we get um, the word energy from. We get energy from. It reminds me of my son, Reed, my six-year-old. He's just full of energy, right? He never stops. He never slows down. And so in our lives, what he wants us to see in this is that God never stops. God never rests. He never slumbers. He's there all the time, and he's working. And so here's the thing that should give us a lot of confidence is the fact that God is the one who's working in me. It's not up to my ability. It's up to what God can do in me and through me. All I've got to do is surrender to him. All I've got to do is yield myself to him so that he can work in me and then work through me in my relationships, in my marriage, in every aspect of my life. I want to finish this by really telling you how we can 
get this energy? How can we see God work in us? The first thing we have to do is we've got to get into his word. We've got to read the Bible. It's a lot more interesting than you think. There's a lot of good stuff in there. There's life-transforming things in here because this word is living, it's active, it's it's God-breathed. It came from God. It's able to work in you. If you don't believe that, I challenge you to sincerely read your Bible for 30 days and tell me if you're not different in 30 days than you are right now because of the word of God that you've put in yourself. It's transforming power. It's got the creative power of God. If you go back and look at Genesis, God created everything. He spoke it into existence. There's creative power in God's word. What we have to do is release this power by getting into it, by letting it get into us, to transform us, to make us new, to give us a new way of thinking, a new way of living. A second thing we have to do is prayer. If we want to see this in our lives, we've got to pray. And see, prayer is more than just a checklist of things that we hope God will do or won't do. It's acknowledging our weaknesses and our inability. But it's saying, I'm grabbing hold of the one who has endless strength and endless ability. Because I know that he can do in me what I can't do on my own. And so by prayer, I grab hold of the throne of God. And I say, God, I need your help. I need you to work in me. I need you to work through me, God. I need you to work in my relationships. I need you, God, to work in my marriage. I need you, God, to change my heart. I need you to continue to grow me up. God, do in me what only you can do, God. Transform my life and my heart. Another way that we see this, that we see God's divine energy, is this this power, is when we face struggles together. When we're unified around the gospel, bound together by the Holy Spirit, and then we face struggles together, and we're standing together as things come against us, and we're moving together, striving to advance the kingdom, and we're standing there unified, not pointing fingers, not saying, you got me into this, or you got us into this, or this is your fault, but unified around the gospel, bound together by the Holy Spirit, realizing that that's the biggest issue, that's the biggest thing we have to be about. And then allowing those struggles to unite you even further and show you the power of God and showing you our our need, our dependence on God. It makes us look beyond ourselves. Another way that we experience the power of God is through community. We talk about connect groups all the time. We need to experience community together. We need to do life together with other people who can encourage us, who can spur us on to doing the things that God's called us to do. And the last thing is obedience, that we surrender our lives to God, that we realize that our obedience is the way that we experience God in our life the most is when we surrender our lives to Him, become obedient to what He's leading us to do, and we see God working in and through our lives. It's how we see God maximize the potential of our life and of our marriage is when we become obedient to God to do what his word says, to do what he says, um, to, to follow his lead, taking our next steps as he leads us to take our next steps. Obedience is how we maximize the potential that God has given us. It's how we mine or harvest all of the value that God's given us in our life and in our marriage is by becoming obedient to Jesus who gave us his example of obedience by going to the cross. And so today, where, 
how are you doing with obedience to God? How are you doing with walking in the power of Jesus, not in your own strengths? How are you doing in surrendering to Him and allowing Him to use you to serve others rather than serving yourself or think of others rather than thinking of yourself or sacrificing for others? How are we doing in that? Because my guess is that you're like me and you're not perfect in it. In fact, I know you're not. And, and here's the thing I know is that we all need the power of the Spirit of God transforming us to make us more into the image of Christ, to make our relationships look more like what Paul describes here to the Philippians, making our marriages look more like what Paul describes to the Philippians. And so today I wanna pray for you. I wanna pray one, first and foremost, if you don't know Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, then I wanna pray for you first. I wanna celebrate with you first and let somebody pray with you. So if you're here today, maybe you don't know Christ. He's never done a heart transformation in you, but, but God is knocking on the door of your heart. You feel God pulling you to himself. You, you, you are experiencing the, the presence of God drawing you to himself. And today was the day of salvation for you of saying, I need a relationship with Christ. Remember, that's the first step if we're gonna function the way God wants us to function. If you're here today and you would say, I wanna take my first step with God in saying yes to my relationship with Jesus, then I want you to just raise your hand so we can celebrate with you and say that we're here to support you and pray with you. If you're here today, you don't have a relationship with Christ, but you want one. You realize that's the greatest need you have. And I want you to raise your hand and say, that's me, that's me. Then I wanna pray for just a minute. And I wanna pray for you. I wanna pray for you. I don't know if it's your marriage you're struggling in. I don't know if it's something to do with just life in general or work. But if today you would say, I'm in a place where I need the Spirit of God to work in me. I'm in a place where I need Him to transform me. I'm in a place where I need the touch of God, then I wanna pray for you. I'm gonna ask you right now, if, if that's you today, I want you to stand to your feet as an act of faith and say, I need the power of God working in my life. I need prayer, I need the Holy Spirit to touch my life. And we're gonna pray together and believe that it's true that God is here and that God is going to touch our hearts and touch our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every person in this room. God, I thank you for their hearts. I thank you for their lives. God, I thank you for those today, this morning, who are crying out to you, who say, God, I need you. And I need you more than I need to worry about what somebody next to me is thinking, God. I thank you for them. And I thank you for the power of, of your love and grace in our lives. I thank you for the power of the spirit that works in us, God. I thank you that you you give us the ability to do what we can't do on our own. You give us the ability to become like you, to be recreated in the image of Christ. God, and, and we, we thank you for that. God, would you continue that process? God, would you fill us with power? Would you fill us with the power to, to see that process take place? And God, I pray uh, today that, that we would be filled with expectation. God, that you are working and that you wanna work in our lives. You wanna work in our marriage. You wanna do um, in us and through us what only you can do. So God, we come with expectancy 
that you're gonna move in our hearts um, long after we left this place, to move here certainly, but God, to continue to move when the real world hits us after we walk out of these doors. And so God, I pray that you would flood us with your spirit. I pray that you would heal broken relationships. I pray that you would heal broken marriages as we come to you, Lord, as we pursue you together. Would you heal, um, God, what, what is broken in each of us as you make us whole and make us more like Christ. God, we love you and we praise your name and thank you that, God, you don't give up on us. You never stop working. And God, you're here for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. We're going to start up a new series next week. And so pray that you'll be here for that. It's going to be good. We'll see you.